Amen. We're going to be looking at uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 13 this morning. 1 Corinthians 13. While you're turning there, just in a way of uh, just uh, something that Brian uh, shared with the deacons on uh, Thursday night, uh, something I hadn't thought about, but I'm sure several of you have, but he mentioned that the treatment that the road department uses to um, to treat the streets before the ice, it is super concentrated salt that is very corrosive to the undercarriage of your cars. And so you'll want to uh, try to get a water hose or something and just kind of rinse off the bottom of your car this week so that way you don't have a bunch of rust and stuff uh, at the bottom of your car. So, uh, so we don't just care about your souls here, we care about everything else. So, <laughs> so anyway, uh, Brian uh, wanted to let us know about that. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, uh, we're gonna be looking at that this morning, continuing on in the three pillars of our uh, church ministry here that we want to develop uh, you so that you will know the faith, that you will live the faith, and that you will share the faith. And I just wanna, I, I believe I've told you, that I'm sure I've told you this story before, but uh, last in my last youth ministry, right before coming here, I was uh, ministering in a church down in southern Arkansas, and um, they had uh, hired me as youth minister, but when they found out that I can kind of do music also, they started kind of moving me more in that direction, which was one of the reasons why I kind of felt my calling away from there and ultimately to here. But, um, but one thing that happened was, as I came in and was beginning to teach, uh, the first Wednesday I was there, nobody had their Bibles with them, none of the kids whatsoever. And so we taught them to start bringing their Bibles with them. And, uh, and I was teaching on who Christ is and, and what Christ did for us and basically helping them to understand uh, Christ and, and who they've put their faith in. And um, anyway, one of the parents complained that um, they went and told the pastor and we actually had to have a, a little meeting. They said, you know, the kids, they just don't need all that theology. They don't need all that doctrine that you're wanting to teach. And I said, okay, well, just out of curiosity, what would you like me to teach your, your daughter? And she said, well, she's in high school and she needs to learn how to be a good friend. I'm like, okay, okay, fair, fair enough. I mean, she does, she needs to know that. So, uh, so anyway, in the meeting, I took her to John chapter 13, where Christ says, a new commandment I give to you, in verse 34 and 35, that you love one another just as I have loved you. And I asked her, how can your daughter learn to be a good friend to love others if she doesn't understand how Christ loved her? You see, you see, and that's, that is the command that Christ has given us. How will we learn to love one another, which is the essence of what it is to share the faith? It is to love one another. And so we're looking at these pillars, knowing the faith, which is as a church, we proclaim Christ as our prophet because he is the truth. We proclaim Christ as our priest. And so through the life he gives us, we live the faith, giving us life uh, in him. And then finally this week, we're looking at sharing the faith. We proclaim Christ as our king, obeying his commands, of which primarily he says, love one another. And I'm going to be honest with you. I started writing about four sermons leading up to this 
because that is such a broad command. And there's so many ways that it could have been taken. Uh, For example, if we talk about loving one another, we talk about sharing the faith. Think about all the things that we could talk about this morning. And I've, I've actually got a little bit of a list up there. We could talk about fellowship and how we, can, we need to fellowship with one another. We could talk about serving one another or serving the community because we're not just called to isolate our love, but we are to love our neighbors as ourselves. And so we could talk about serving the community. We could talk about outreach or sharing the gospel. We could talk about hospitality, which in the Greek literally means love of stranger, welcoming people, not only into our church family, but even into our homes and and allowing them to come in and share of our resources. We could talk about living in community and sharing life together. We could go into any one of the somewhat 31 another commands, and we could talk about any one of them, et cetera. All of those things could be encompassed in sharing the faith, and yet... When it comes down to it, if we had talked about any one of those, there's a, there's a temptation that we might have gotten into, and that is this, that any one of those can be thought of through a program mentality. Now, there's nothing wrong with programs. We have programming. In fact, you could say that all of our songs and all the things fit together. That's our programming for this morning. There's, there's nothing wrong with programmings until you start to depend on the programs to do the work of God for you so that we don't have to expend and spend of ourselves. And that's the issue here. That's the problem. All of these things, talking about these things can give us the wrong impression and lead to a program mentality. Beloved, at the end of the day, programs do not attract people. People attract people. And attractive people attract people. And I'm not talking about physically attractive, but I'm talking about people who, who you meet them and you know that they just exude love from their personality and how they treat others. Look at what John says again, what he records Christ is saying in verse 34 and 35. And again, this is one of those verses, one of the very few verses that talks about actual church growth, and yet you never hear it talked about in church growth seminars. He says that just as I've loved you, you also are to love one another. And look what he says after that. He says, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples. In other words, the greatest evangelistic tool we have is our love. You can have the best outline, gospel outline in the world, and yet if you don't show love, it's not going to scratch the surface. It's not going to get past the ears of the other person. And so I thought instead of talking about one of any one of those things we could have talked about sharing the faith, I thought I would just go back to the very basic and the thing that animates it all. And that is what is Christian love and what does it look like? Now, I've, I've already got that song playing in my head. I don't know if I'm the only sinner in the room, but what is love? No, no. So... <laughs> 
I'm, am I the only sinner in the room? So, okay. Uh, who wrote the book of love? Maybe that's your generation. But anyway, so uh, we're not gonna go there, but we are gonna look at 1 Corinthians chapter 13 because this is probably the primary text that gives us, it doesn't really define love, but it does give us a description of love and why it is so necessary in the life of the church. And this is a, a very popular passage. Very popular. Chances are you've probably, some of you probably have this memorized. Some of you probably have it in uh, hanging up in your kitchen or in your dining room or, or somewhere where your family gathers. You've probably heard it at weddings. I've heard it at funerals and, and so on and so forth. But, but when we look at the context of what this is talking about, what Paul is describing here is not necessarily marital love, although it would certainly apply. But what, what Paul is describing here is the love of the church community for one another. It's in the context of talking about spiritual gifts and more specifically the abuse of them and how the Corinthian church were using their different gifts to one-up each other. And Paul says, look, 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 no, 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 no. I wanna show you a more excellent way. And then he gives these wonderful 13 verses about love, and this is what the church community is to look like as we share the faith, both with one another and with our community. And so, beginning in verse one, we're gonna see throughout this chapter that we must obey Christ's command to love, to love one another and to love our neighbors as ourselves. So what does this look like? Why is it so necessary? We're gonna, we're gonna see that this morning, just going through the verses one by one. Beginning in the first part, we see in verses one through three, that we must obey Christ's command to love because it is indispensable. It is indispensable to ministry. It is, it is necessary. It is absolutely essential. Now, it, first of all, it is required of the church for nothing other than the fact that Christ commands us to love. And if that was all the revelation we had for loving one another, then that would be enough to convince us to love one another, at least it should be. And yet, we're gonna see that it is also practically necessary it is also practically necessary. It, Paul, in these first three verses, he's gonna give three examples that basically make the exact same point. That if we do whatever it is we do, if we don't have love, it is good for nothing. Good for absolutely nothing. Look at verse one. He says, if I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I am nothing but a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Paul doesn't seem in the New Testament, according to the, the evidence we have, it doesn't seem like Paul was really that gifted of a speaker. He was a very gifted writer. But as you look at the times, the very few times that he mentions his public speaking, it doesn't seem that he was very gifted in that. But we've seen those who are. For example, um, who was it? It was um, his friend uh, that's escaping me at the moment. But the one who was so, um, what was his name? Huh? 
Barnabas, yes, Barnabas was so gifted. There is the other one who, uh, who was preaching and, com- and compelling the Jews in the synagogue. And, and, uh, and he was just known for his amazing speech. There's a church father, my favorite church father is a man by the name of John Chrysostom. In fact, it is his theology and his pastoral theology that really uh, was a great influence for the Reformation and the Reformers. And, but that name, that last name, Chrysostom, it means golden-tongued. And when you read his sermons, they are, they are just incredible things to read. I, I just wish that I could hear him say and, and, and preach, oh, that, uh, you know, I think one of the greatest crimes in church history is that, did you know that recording technology existed when Spurgeon was alive? No one recorded him. Can you believe that? No one recorded him. It was available. No one did it. Wouldn't you have loved to have heard Spurgeon preach? I joke about Scottish accents. You can have all of that. But if you don't have love, you are nothing but a clanging gong or cymbal. It's not the heart-stopping, beautiful cymbal crash of an orchestra but the loud, obnoxious sound of banging pots and pans. That's all you are. Think of that little xylophone that your kid got when he was two years old and banged it all over the house. That's what we're talking about here. And the point is made. Go back to verse two. He noticed what he says here. He says in verse two that if I have prophetic powers, I understand all mysteries and all knowledge. If I have all faith, one of our pillars two weeks ago we said is to know the faith. We want you to know what you believe. And notice he goes on and talks about faith to remove mountains. Look at verse three. Faith that is enough that if I gave away all that I had and deliver up my body to be burned, I can, I can know all the mysteries of the faith, deep, profound knowledge. I can know, I can count all things as loss, but to know Christ and him crucified. I can do all of that. But if I don't have love, it's all for nothing. It's all for nothing. We gain nor we accomplish nothing. Beloved, I love our reformed faith. It is, there is such an intellectual satisfaction in studying the deep doctrines of God. Amen. There's such an intellectual satisfaction of that. I, I love the Puritans. And, and one group that I especially love out of the Puritans is the Dutch Calvinist. I, I love those guys. And they talk about these deep experiential truths and, and how, they, how they lived out that faith and how it sustained them. It was so powerful in that they show us how to live. Beloved, you can have all of that. But if you don't have love, if you're not demonstrating Christ's love, then all of that is for nothing. You don't gain anything. And so churches have asked before, what's wrong? Why can't we seem to attract people? Why can't we bring anybody in? No matter what we do, we can't seem to, to bring people in. We've, we've, we've learned new songs. We've changed our worship style. We've, we've started new programs. Our preaching is good, not Scottish, but good. (laughs) 
I just got this thing with Scottish preaching. I don't, I don't know. I should probably stop. But we've, 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 we've got all of these things that we're doing good. But what about your love? What about your love? Because, beloved, at the end of the day, a person, and I've said this so many times, that a person will forgive any shortcoming of a church. If you don't have the best youth program, they'll forgive that. If you don't have the best music, they'll forgive that. If you don't have the best preaching, they'll forgive that. But one thing people will not forgive is a lack of love in church. That they will not forgive. And rightfully so. Rightfully so. And beloved, listen, this is where we need to be a little careful. Because I highly doubt that if you were to ask most churches, are you loving? They would say, no, we're not. Now, some of them, if they were honest, they probably should. But most of them would not say that. And you know what? If you're part of the church, you feel that. But what happens in a church so often is that all of that love and all that community is directed inwardly, not outwardly. And so there's a huge blind spot in many churches where when outsiders come in, the church is just as loving as can be if you're on the inside, but when an outsider comes in, they don't feel that. And that is a huge blind spot that so many churches have. And I can say, beloved, from the testimony of several who have joined our church recently, we are doing good there. We're doing very good, but we can still excel still more. We can still excel more. How is love in our church? Is, our, is the church marked by mere civility or do we truly love one another? Is there cliquishness going on? Is there bickering and carrying on, withholding, murmuring among the different groups? All of that needs to stop. We need to truly love one another beyond civility and truly love one another. And so what does that look like? What does that look like? We say beyond civility. So obviously we have something in mind here. So what do we have in mind? Well, I'm glad you asked. Look in verses four through eight. We must obey Christ's command to love, not only because it's indispensable, but because it displays Christ's character. It displays Christ's character. And my guess is that you guys have heard probably these verses so many times in your life. And yet what I wanna do is I wanna invite you this morning as we go through, and, and I'm not gonna explain every one. A lot of them are self-explanatory, so we don't really need to take a lot of time with it. But, but as we do, here's what I want you to do. Instead of reflecting on this is what I need to do, I want you to look at each description and reflect on how does Christ show this character of love? How did he display this characteristic of love in his life and how does he do it toward me? Because ultimately, if we are not looking to Christ, if we are not gaining our strength from Christ, if we're not following Christ's example, then we could fall into this worldly idea of what love is, to where it's really nothing more than, than an emotional kind of warm, fuzzy feeling in your heart or in your chest. That could be last night's pizza. I mean, I mean, I mean you just don't know. And so we want to see how does scripture define love and what does it say? And so I invite you as we look at these, think of Christ's love and how they are displayed. He says, 
Number one in verse four, that love is patient and kind. Patient and kind. The idea behind patience is that we demonstrate self-control in spite of difficulties, in spite of long-suffering, in spite of, of, of we show poise and character even when things are not the way we want. Think, consider the patience of Christ in, in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse uh, 22 and 23. He talks about here, specifically in verse 23, when Christ was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Patience is one of the sure signs that our faith is resting on Christ. Christ was able to display such patience and poise and character because he fully entrusted himself to God's plan, to the Father's plan. And so that patience comes from Christ. He did not revile or complain when he was led like a sheep to slaughter. He opened not his mouth. And so he was patient and think of his kindness, the way he dealt with sinners, <clears throat> the way he dealt with those who were broken. Think of his kindness toward the, the Samaritan woman who, had, who looked at him and, and flat out said, why, why would you talk to me? This doesn't, this doesn't happen. Who are you to think you can talk to me? And think of the kindness that he showed her as he, as he led her step by step into a realization of who he was and who he is. Love is patient and kind. He goes on, it does not envy or boast. Think of Philippians chapter two, that Christ, though he was equal to God, did not consider equality with God a thing that he had to grasp onto, a thing that he had to hold onto, that he had to grip it in case somebody would steal it from him. But he emptied himself and took on the form of a slave and then became obedient even to death, even the death of a cross. He did not envy or boast, but he emptied himself. Paul says it's not arrogant. It's not rude. You know, this is kind of the problem with those who tell it like it is. You know, so often it's not what you're saying that's necessarily true or false, but you're saying it in a way that doesn't build up the other person. It's not really meant to build up the other person. All it is is to gratify your desire to say it. And that's the only reason you're saying it. It does not, it's not rude. It's not, it, it's, pride, it's not prideful. It's not saying things simply and solely because I feel like I want to be heard. That's not love. That's selfishness. That's pride. And it's ugly. And so Paul says love, genuine biblical love, is not arrogant. It's not rude. And it does not insist on its own way. It does not insist on its own way. Love, love seeks to serve. 
the other person. Think about Paul. He says, consider the interest of others as more important than your own. Isn't that what Christ did for us? Isn't that what Christ did? Did he not give up the grandeur of heaven? Did he not give up the worship and the constant glory, the glory that he shared with his father before even the foundation of the earth, before he even created all of this, that he, the father and the spirit enjoyed perfect fellowship and he walked away from all of that so that he could come here and so that he could show his love for the world. Is that not what Christ did for us? How will we then insist on our own way? How will we then insist that we must have what we want? And it's not irritable or resentful in verse seven. Again, love acts for the good of the other person. You don't feel like you have to walk on eggshells around a loving person. You don't feel like that any one little false statement, any one little thing, any one little mistake is just gonna set them off. That's not love. In fact, one of the tests of idolatry is what makes you angry. What is it that you get mad about when you get that you don't want or you don't get and you want? What are you willing to sin for? When those things happen, what are you willing to sin against another person for? What are you willing to sin against your husband? What are you willing to sin against your wife? Your sin against your children, children sinning against your parents. Why? Because you're not getting something you want or you're getting something you don't want. That's the test of idolatry. By definition, in that moment at least, I'm loving it more than love God. Genuine love, true Christ-like love. Watch this, beloved. This is so countercultural. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. You know, this is one of the greatest lies of our culture that in order to love someone, you basically got to tolerate every little thing that they want to do and say. It's one of the lies of our culture. That if I truly love you, then I will tolerate or I will love your lifestyle. Or I will love the things you do. Beloved, that's not love. Genuine love does not rejoice at wrongdoing. Because we know that ultimately all sin is corrosive. Just like the salt that has been on our road. If you don't wash it off, it will slowly but surely corrode the bottom undercarriage of your car. And beloved, sin will do the same thing to your soul if you don't get it washed off in true confession and repentance. And it's not loving to leave someone in their sin now, again, don't fall back on the previous mistake and say, well, we're just gonna let them have it. No, we're not talking about that. We're not gratifying ourselves. But it's not loving to tell someone that their sin is gonna cost them dearly. It's not loving to not tell someone, excuse me. It's, it's not loving to not warn people of the fires of hell and the wrath of God, and to not offer them a savior in its place. It is not loving to keep the gospel 
to ourselves, to those who need it and their wrongdoing. It rejoices in truth. It bears all things, it believes all things, it hopes all things, endures all things. Love does not end. It does not fail. You know, it's a symptom of our fallenness that we just automatically believe the worst about people. Just automatically, that's our default position. Uh, whenever, uh, whenever my kids were young, uh, I think it was Kaylin, she was playing t-ball. And one of the kids hit the ball off of the tee and it like whammed her in the face. And, and she, was, uh, she was probably what, four, five years old, something like that. You know what her first thing was? He did it on purpose. Babe Ruth could not have aimed a wiffle ball that good, okay? <laughs> he could not, his target was not that good. Babe Ruth couldn't have done that. But it's that symptom of human fallenness that we automatically believe the worst. Uh, when I taught my kids to play racquetball, we were, we were headed to the racquetball court over at the community center. And before we went into that, you guys remember this? Before we went into the court, I said, okay, guys, listen up. You are gonna get hit by a racquetball. It is going to hurt really bad. And the other two or the other three did not do it on purpose. So do not fight. <laughs> and you know what? I think it was Hannah, man. She, she whammed me with a racquetball and uh, it hurt. And all of a sudden I had to practice what I preached because I really wanted to be like, you did it on purpose, you know? <laughs> and I had to catch myself and I was just like, woo! And, and, uh, and then we just kept on playing. So I'm telling you, man, it hurt. I don't know if you've ever been beamed with a racquetball before. It hurt. That's our knee-jerk reaction, just to assume that others have the wrong intentions. Just to assume that. Beloved, what if love gives the benefit of the doubt? What if love chooses to believe the best about someone until we have very good reason to suggest otherwise? Very good reason. Love gives the benefit of the doubt. It bears all things, it believes all things, it hopes all things, it endures all things. Let's choose to believe the best about each other. Let's choose to believe the best about our intentions. Beloved, as you look at all of these characteristics, wouldn't you love to be a church that's characterized like this? Wouldn't you love to be part of a church that loves like this? This is not mushy, wimpy kind of love. In fact, if you think it's wimpy, try it. You're gonna find out it's not wimpy at all. The wimps are the ones who have to lash out. They're the wimps. True strength is self-control. True strength is patience, kindness, True strength is love, like Christ loves. And so this is how Christ loves us. Beloved, when we love one another this way, it reflects Christ to the world. It reflects him to the world. 
I don't know about you, but I cannot read through those verses, verses four through eight. I can't read them and not be convicted. And judging by the fact that I'm not getting a lot of amens, I'm guessing you guys are probably feeling the same way. But listen, I want you to understand this is a process. This is a process. This comes natural to none of us, okay? This comes natural to nobody except Christ. And so why must we love one another? Why must we obey his command? Not just because it's indispensable, not because it displays his character, but it also demonstrates maturity. It demonstrates maturity. As he goes on in verse eight, he says that, for as for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. We know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. Now, as popular as the earlier verses are, these are controversial. And for the sake of time, I'm not gonna deal with the controversy, okay? You've, you've, you've gotta remember the context. What are, what, what, it, what are the Corinthians specifically abusing? They're abusing prophecy and they're abusing tongues, okay? And so this is, this is contextual. And yet, Paul's point is clear. Paul's point is very clear. <clears throat> and I'm losing my breath. But let's... Uh, Let's stick with the main point here. Paul says that all of these spiritual gifts that the Corinthians are pining for and arguing, all of these are only partial. They will go away. Think about this. All these spiritual gifts that the Bible mentions, administration, preaching, uh, uh, tongues, prophecy, uh, all of these serving, what do they all do? They all serve one another in order to mature the church. Well, one day, the church is gonna be mature. And when the church is exalted, when the church is glorified, the tools that we need to mature the church are no longer going to be needed. You guys know that I just did a, a lot of, uh, we just did a lot of renovations in our house. And one thing we did was redo the flooring. And uh, we did this floating tile. I, I didn't know what floating tile was. I was imagining a Star Wars thing where it would like float about this high off the ground. And uh, I'm, not a, I'm not a maintenance guy. So uh, I'm definitely not a carpenter. Don't ever hire me for handyman work. But, um, but all of this materials would come in. So every day a new, a new supply of floating tile would come in. And the guys would come into the house and they would, they would do the floor and they would put it all down. Then the next morning, another shipment would come in and they would put that down. The next morning, another shipment would. But one day they were done. Our floors were retiled, right? Can you imagine what would happen if the tile just kept on coming? What was it gonna do? It was just gonna pile up and not be used. And beloved, the point of spiritual gifts is to mature the church, but there is a day coming when we will be mature. And all of those things that are in part will pass away. All of those things that we do to mature the church, when the church is perfected, all those things we do to build ministry will no longer be necessary. Now, ultimately, the final perfection, we know when that will be. Our ultimate maturity will come when we see Christ face to face. Going back to 1 John chapter 3 
In verse two, we, or verse three, we read this verse last week in light of hope. Beloved, we are God's children and we don't know uh, what, when he appears, what we shall be like, but we shall be like him. So we know the ultimate perfection comes when Christ comes. But notice what he says here. I'm going to skip down. He gives a couple of examples, a couple of kind of illustrations, but go down to verse 13. Notice what he says at the end. He says that once that perfection comes, once that maturity is there, everything in part will have been done away, but there's three things that will remain. Faith, hope, and love. And then Paul says this morning, and the reason why we saved this for the end, is that he goes on to say that the greatest of these is love. Why? Because love is what animates the other two. Paul, in various lists that he gives, uh, I'm thinking of Colossians, when he talks about all of these Christian virtues that we are to put on, and he says, like a coat, just like when you leave today and you put your coat on above all of your other clothing, he says, put on love. So every time you put on your coat, I want you to think that I am to put on love as I go to wherever it is I'm going. And I'm to show Christ's love to the world and to the church. It's the greatest because it animates everything else. Beloved, faith and hope are two sides of a railroad track, but love is the engine that drives the train. And so the kind of love that we need to display Christ is the kind of love that that we want to develop. And beloved, that's why we say knowing the faith, sharing the faith, living the faith, that's, that's why we say that. It's based on faith, hope, and love. Because you see, all of these other things are in part. And when, and when the perfected church is done, whenever Christ brings his bride and perfects her and glorifies her for all eternity, all of the things we do will be done. But what remains will be faith, hope, and love. And so, beloved, our, our, our goal at Calvary is not to make you happy, well-adjusted sinners in this life. It's not to make you talented sinners. It's not to make you well-liked sinners. Our goal is to build you for the kingdom. Because when all of those other things that are in part will be done away, these three will remain. Faith, hope, and love. And so that's why we want to develop our faith together so that we are growing in faith, we are growing in hope, and we are growing in our love for one another. We wanna have an eternal perspective. We wanna build you and make you ready for heaven. <coughs> Doesn't that sound great? I hope it does. Sounds great. Wouldn't you love to be a part of a church like that? Beloved, I believe that a church that is healthy, that is growing, is the closest thing to heaven as we can get to on this earth. But that can't happen if we don't love each other. You can be sound in doctrine, but just like Ephesians, you can lose your first love. 
you can forget your first love. You can have all the practice. You can be a, you can be a prayer warrior. You can, you can cook the best meals at the fellowship, at the potlucks. If you don't have love, it doesn't go anywhere. But beloved, love will animate and drive the other two. It will drive the other two. It's faith in action. It's faith made outward. You say, Randy, the kind of love you're talking about is not possible. This is a pipe dream. Nobody is like this. Christ is. Christ is. So you know what he did? Christ came to earth and he died on the cross. He demonstrated. We could go through the gospels and we can find a demonstration of every one of these aspects of love in the life of Christ. I'm sure we could. And he came and lived out that perfect love, that perfect obedience to the Father. And then to show the ultimate demonstration of love, he went to the cross and he died for our sins. And every time we have not lived up to 1 Corinthians 13, he covered on the cross. And he gave us his love to replace our imperfect love. His kingdom to replace our selfish kingdoms. His, his righteousness to replace our sinful corruption. So he has done it all. And beloved, the more you turn and the more you reflect on Christ, the more you will love like him. Just like standing out in the sun, the more you stand, the more you're exposed into the sun, the more that sun will color your skin, will tan your skin. In the same way, beloved, the more we are exposed to the glory of Christ, the more we will be shaped and molded to be like him. And so church, let's love one another. By the way, we do good. Calvary Baptist Church is a loving church. I'm so thankful for that. Amen? Very loving church, we are. Let's do better. Let us love one another. Why? How do I know this is possible? Because love is from God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. First John chapter four. That's why I know it's possible. Because you in this room are either born of God or you have the opportunity this morning to be born of God. And that's what makes it possible to love one another. You don't really know how to love until you know Christ because he loved us first and he teaches us how to love. So church, let's love one another. As Christ loved his bride, let's love one another. You cannot say, I love God and hate your brother. Can't do it. I hate Picasso. I, I, I don't understand his paintings. I don't get it. Oh boy, he was a great painter, wasn't he? That didn't make any sense what I just said, did it? None whatsoever. I can't say I hate Picasso's paintings and say I love Picasso in the same sentence. 
And I can't look at you who is created in the image of God and say, I love God, but I hate someone who's created in his image. I can't do that. It's just as foolish. So let's love one another. Father, we thank you for this time. And I'm sure just as I have been challenged and convicted by these verses, I I look at myself over the last, my goodness, just over the last week or two, and I see so many lapses in love that I've had in my life. And so, Father, I ask first and foremost that you would forgive me, that you would conform me more into this aspect of Christ's love for us, for me. Help me to bask. Help me to sunbathe in the glory of the love of Christ so that it will tan me after Christ's image so that I can reflect his love to the world. And Father, I pray that for our church, that we would be exposed to the glory of God, that we would be exposed to the love of Christ through his word. And if there's one here this morning who does not know the love of Christ, they don't have the gospel doing that work in their hearts, shaping them, conforming them, and making them like Christ, I pray that they would come this morning and respond. Even right now, Lord, as they sit, I pray they are responding to saving faith. This is the kind of love I need. I've never known love like this before, but I know I want it and they can have it. So Father, I pray that you would do your work through your love. All conviction, all chastising, all of it is because you are a loving Father. And so Father, thank you in the areas that our church does well. Thank you so much for helping us to do so. And Lord, where the in the areas where our church is not doing so well, in the areas where we have blind spots, in the areas where we're just immature, Lord, mature us in the glory of Christ. Make us a church, make us your body so that we may do your work from your love. Let's stand together as we sing this song, appropriate song, I thought, for the, for the topics today. And if you're here and you need to know Christ as your Savior, I invite you to come. We won't embarrass you. We'll rejoice with you. And we'll share how you can know that. Maybe you've received Christ, but you need to confess him in baptism. We invite you to come. We can take care of that. Maybe you want to join the church this morning. Whatever your need is, we invite you to come. If you just need counsel or prayer, we invite you to come.